0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to my little talk on the Great Western Railway, um, which this year celebrates its 175th anniversary, although it was actually incorporated through Parliament in 1835. So you could argue that its proper 170th anniversary in two years' time. I'll talk about uh, the history of the GWR a bit, and about, or principally about, Isambard, King, which Brunel, the main person you associate with the GWR. But I suspect there's quite a few railway experts here who may conceivably know even more about the history of the GWR than I do, it's possible. Uh, So I'm mainly gonna be talking about some of the amazing documents we've got here relating to that subject and records you can look at if you want to get an idea of how railways, in particular, GWR, um, transformed Britain in the early 19th century. And I'm going roughly from the early 1830s up to when Mr. Brunel died in 1859. So it's called um, God's Wonderful Railway, which sounds to me a bit like a marketing term. I mean, I, I, I suspect the workers on there didn't call it, you know, <laughs> on, their, on their job application or when they're courting someone didn't say, oh, "I work for God's Wonderful Railway." But anyway, it, it, it caught on. It caught on. God's waiting as well, and uh, rather more critically, the Great Way Round because it followed, it, it didn't always follow direct routes. Key dates. Obviously, there's you know, the, the railways had an enormous effect on Britain, and in one sense, every new railway company um, had, had key dates had new lines, new railways, new bridges, new railway towns being constructed. And but I've just picked out the key dates in the early history of the GWR, and it's founded as a public meeting in Bristol in 1833, and is incorporated by act of parliament in 1835. It's a was bought in 186, was appointed Chief Engineer of the line. In 1838, the line between Paddington and Maidenhead was opened, um, 22 and a half miles, and in 1840, two years later, the line from Bristol to Bath was opened, and gradually they all met up with one another. In 1841, uh, the box tunnel opened most of you have been through the Box Tunnel at some stage, is an amazing engineering achievement. And after the opening of the Box Tunnel, trains could run from Paddington all the way to Bridgewater in Somerset, It's 152 miles. In 1856, the line was extended to Nayland in South Wales uh, by meeting up with the South Wales Railway. So the GWR, under the auspices of Brunel, um, pushed further westwards, and when it met up with other smaller railway companies, the tendency was to amalgamate the with them or take over them or merge with them. In 1859, Brunel died when he was only 53. And eight years later, after his death, um, the line was further extended down to Penzance. And, and that was done in conjunction with the South Devon Railway and the West Cornwall Railway, which basically ceased to exist soon after that date. That's your man, isn't our Kingdom Bruno? You've got the cigar in his mouth there, but when the Royal Mail issued some stamps to commemorate his life, the cigar's removed. <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> but that, that's the iconic picture of him. Um, he looks sort of fairly scruffy there, but he, he was on a very good salary. I mean, as we'll see later on, I mean, he was being employed by more than one uh, railway company, and the GWR was paying him two thousand pounds a year, so he's a rich man although he doesn't look particularly rich there. I'll give you a few um, notes about uh, Brunel himself. The first and greatest engineer of the Great Western Railway isn't like King de Brunel, the son of a French engineer was born in Portsmouth in 1806. His name is forever associated with the Great Western Railway, but he also designed tunnels and bridges such as the Clifton Bridge and the new bridge which crossed the Thames at Hungerford in 1841 and also steamships such as the SS Great Britain and the SS Great Western which sailed between Bristol and New York. He is generally described as the greatest engineer of the heroic period of the 19th century century engineering. Often troubled by ill health, on one occasion he swallowed a half-sovereign while um, performing a conjuring trick for his children in 1843 and they had to perform an emergency tracheotomy I don't think he ever really quite recovered from that. But his main problem was that he was an incredible workaholic. He was just non-stop. And he attended to all the minutiae of details in relation to the, well, all the projects he was working on, particularly the Great Western Railway. Uh, so he, he, I think he may die from exhaustion. He was only 53 and he died in 1859. <coughs> and he's buried at Kensal Green Cemetery in London. Uh, in the very same month he died, his last steamship, the SS Great Eastern, embarked on her maiden voyage. So that's a brief outline of Mr. Brunel. I found him on the 1841 census. Here you can see I.K. Brunel, a civil engineer, uh, living in Bath at that time. Probably engaged in railway business, I expect. And here he is ten years later. Um, the household of Isambard and Mary Elizabeth Brunel resident at 17-18 Duke Street in Westminster in London and they've got quite a classy address by that stage now, I mean, you you can have statistics galore about the Great Western Railway I would just give you um, some examples of a few I've managed to get hold of The, um, the GWR Operated initially until the 1890s, uh, broad and narrow um, gauge railways. In 1850, 2,491, 712 passengers um, co- travelling on 1,425, 573 miles of railways with receipts of £630,000, 630000 £515, pounds. and by, by 1934, 80 odd years later, it, massive, it massively increased. Um, But that doesn't include season ticket journeys. (laughs) So it it was a major railway and it it had a huge franchise over the London, west of England, southwest of England, the West Midlands and throughout Wales as well. I'll just briefly talk about um, the issue of railway gauges. Anyone who's interested in that particular subject, and many railway historians are, can just, of course, search on our catalogue under, well, I mean, whatever topic you choose to search under. I mean, you can just search under broad and narrow gauge railway, or just broad and narrow gauge, and narrow the search down to the rail, any rail series. Um, most gauge lines and trains are brought to Paddington, uh, were brought to Paddington 1861, thus line through passenger trains from London to Chester. The broad-gauge South, South Wales Railway amalgamated with the GWR in 1862, as did the West Midland Railway, which brought with it the oxford West and Wolverhampton Railway, a line that had been conceived as another broad-gauge route to the Midlands, but which had been built as a narrow gauge after several battles to ensure that it was so. On 1st April 19, 1869, the broad-gauge was taken out of use between oxford and Wolverhampton, and from Reading to Bays Stoke, In August, the line from Hereford was converted from broad to narrow, and the whole of the line from Swindon through Gloucester to South Wales was similarly treated in May 1872. In 1874, the mixed gauge was extended along the main line to Chippenham, and the line from there to Weymouth was narrowed. The following year saw mixed gauge laid through the box tunnel, with the broad gauge now retained only for through services beyond Bristol and on a few branch lines. The Bristol and Exeter Railway amalgamated with the GWR on 1st of January 1876. It already made a start on mixing the gauge on its line, a task completed through Exeter in March 1876 by the GWR. The station here had been shared with the LSWR since ni- 1862, and this rival company had continued to push westwards over, its, over the Exeter and Crediton Line and arrived in Plymouth, Plymouth later in 1876, which spurred the South Devon Railway to also amalgamate with the Great Western. So, uh, a lot of these uh, amalgamations that were taking place, and the question was between narrow and board gauge was finally settled in the um, 1890s with the last board gauge leaving Paddington in January 1892. But there are, uh, there are obviously narrow gauge, um, different gauge railways all over this country and abroad as well. Before I talk about um, various documents we've got in our Custody relating to the history of the GWR. I thought I'd refer to the a, a letter from the in Swindon, who sent to the GWR, presumably, is at least copied to Mr. <coughs> Brunel, praising the conduct of the GWR relative to the building of schools and the church at New Swindon, and mentioning also the increasing extent of vice in Swindon is most awful. Now he didn't he didn't specify what sort of vice there was, but. You can imagine that a new railway town, and Swindon was effectively a new town, would have brought with it sort of <laughs> uh, lots of drink problems possibly and other related issues. So he wasn't too happy about that, but he was quite happy about the, um, uh, the railway itself and the fact that they were building schools and churches because of the coming of the railway. If you're looking for someone who worked on the Great Western Railway, the, the main series you should be looking at, I mean, there are other ones, is Rail 264. Uh, this is a particularly important series because of the size of the company and because many research and ancestors who worked for the GWR. So, I mean, so you could look elsewhere, and of course, people started with one company and perhaps moved on to the GWR afterwards. At the moment, we're cataloguing some of the staffing records for the GWR in Rail 264. and the first nine piece numbers in two hundred and sixty-four cover clerks employed by the GWR. So you can actually search on a catalogue under the clerk's name, just to see if you get details of the. Um, you can find details of the person you're looking for, when he joined, when he left, etc. And the, the aim is to have all the, all the clerks catalogued, hopefully fairly soon. And if you are looking for, if you find the original record for someone who. Served as a clerk um, on the GWR as we are talking about the clerks. Uh, That's the sort of information you're going to find. You get the name, uh, date uh, date of entering service, which department, at which stations they're based. Now, I thought I'd briefly mention what happened before the rocket came along. Uh, Now, obviously, Stevenson, uh, um, George Stevenson. Others designed the famous rocket for which first went up from Liverpool, between Liverpool and Manchester in 1830. But a common misconception is that the rocket was the first steam locomotive. In fact, the first steam locomotive to run on tracks was built by Richard Trevithick some 25 years earlier, but his designs were not developed beyond the experimental stage. Then followed the commercially successful twin cylinder steam locomotives built by Matthew Murray in Holbeck for the Middleton Railway between Middleton and Leeds in York, Yorkshire. Joel Stevenson, as well as a number of other engineers had built steam locomotives before. Rocket was in some ways an evolution not a revolution. Rocket's claim to fame is that it was the first modern locomotive drawing together several recent strands of technological improvement. Some tried elsewhere and some still experimental to produce the most advanced locomotive of its day. And the template for most steam locomotives since in fact, the standard steam locomotive design is often called the Stevensonian locomotive. And so the concept of railways was um, certainly well known before Stevenson came along and certainly well, well known before the rocket was designed. And you'll find so railway companies were in existence beforehand. I mean, there's a famous one, the, the Surrey Iron Railway went down from between Wandsworth and near Croydon in, and that was 1803. And so, railways as a means of technology uh, mainly to transport goods as well as possibly passengers the idea had been well, was well developed and well known about before the 1830s um, and of course uh, the canal owners weren't particularly happy about this because this was seen rightly as a direct competition to what they were doing. Um, if, you're interested in any, if you're interested in the earlier history of railways you can, you've got various files you can look at Rail 371 for example, there's an estimate for a proposed railway between Liverpool and Manchester in February 1825. And in, also in north east of for plan and section of proposed railway between Waterloo Road, Liverpool and Key Street, Manchester, surveyed and designed by George Stevenson in November 1824. I mean, lots of people do regard 1828 to 1830 as being roughly when railway mania began, which is a convenient uh, starting period if you like, and I'll say the GWR started only a years after that. In 1824, um, there was also bearing in mind what we're going to be discussing this afternoon, uh, a proposed railway between Bristol and Bath, and this is the um, proposal itself. The elevating distinguished position of this country was probably never more visible than at the present period the commercial prosperity of almost every town and district in the kingdom, and the plans now in contemplation to facilitate trade and manufactures, must be so apparent to every observer that to particularise is unnecessary. Well, it's necessary for us, possibly, but it wasn't necessary at the time for them. Among the most important is that, the, is that grand improvement, the locomotive steam engine, for the conveyance of passengers and merchandise on a railroad, by means of this power, a company will be enabled to transport the heaviest goods with certainty and security by day and night at all times of the year in periods of frost or of drought at the, right at the rate of at least eight miles an hour and passengers at the rate of 12 miles an hour. So that the, that, that, that proposal was made in 1824, some 10 odd years before the GWR set up. Um, so Brunel was able to work on existing um, plans and proposals that had been put before. Which had been um, suggested beforehand. The Act itself, I say, the G.W. the Great Western Railway set up a public meeting in Bristol in 1833. In 1835, in this document here, Rail 106332, we see an Act for making a railway from Bristol to join the London and Birmingham Railway near London, to be called the Great Western Railway, with branches therefrom to the towns of Bradford and Trowbridge in the county of Wilts wheelchair. And a prospectus was issued at about the same time concerning London, Bath & Bristol, Railway and beyond uh, with capital of £2,500,000 in shares of £100 each with a t- deposit of £2.10 per share. Subscribers not to be answerable beyond the amount of their respective shares. The line will be 114 miles in length from Bristol to the point of junction with the Ber- Birmingham line near Wormwood Scrubs. The station for passengers in London is intended to be near the new road in the parish of St Pancras. And that was the original perspective for the GWR. And here we see a map showing how the GWR expanded. In the early years, this is dated mid eighteen forties, and it reached as far as Bristol. Later, later it joined up with other lines already in existence in Somerset, Devon, and Cornwall. It only really barely extended into South Wales at that stage, but that did come along uh, well very extensively over the next few years, and it joined up with companies already in existence over there. Now, uh, various. Bills and papers were presented to Parliament in relation to the su- relationship to the establishment of the railway with proposals as to where the, route, the line should be routed, um, compensation for farm owners, landowners, etc., um, objections from various interested bodies. And here we have the, well, the Great Western Rail- Railway Bill of 1835 with what's called a proof of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, civil engineer on surveying the proposed lines from London to Reading and Bath to Bristol. And the witness stated that he is a civil engineer and that he surveyed the proposed series from London to Reading and from Bath to Bristol, that the line from the west end of London to Reading proceeds by Acton, Hanwell, Southall Green, West Strait and Slough and across the river a little to the south of Maidenhead Bridge in a straightforward line to Reading. And his further proof on the same matter submitted to Parliament at that time, um, again, Brunel was asked to prove that witness was originally employed by the provisional committee with whom this measure originated to investigate the lines which we might offer at, which we might offer and to advise them as to the best line that he examined the country and pointed two lines, the one to the south and the, and the other to the north of the Marlborough Downs. Now, I mean, one thing which I alluded to earlier on was the fact that Mr. Brunel was, um, well, he worked, you know, eight days a week. He was an incredibly industrious person, and he attended to the smallest and minutest of details. And I found this letter here, dated 3rd of September 1835, as the Bill was going through Parliament. My dear sir, I have received directions to set up the line between Bath and Bristol and London and Reading, and have written to Mr. Townsend to obtain immediate permission to act to cut sufficiently for the small but thick underwoods, I think it says, in Brislington and that neighbourhood. Will you have the goodness to assist him in obtaining leave from the different proprietors in order that this may be done? There's no need for asking the Duke of Buckingham, we know he will consent his tenant. So he was he was involved in all aspects of the establishment of the company. And later on, this next letter I found, that's dated a couple of years earlier. Um, so the more or less about the time when the GWR was initially established in Bristol one of the girders the main girdle at the south front of the Greenford land or the Metropolitan Bridge, Road Bridge has broken sets have been taken to leave it temporarily and at present no further accident need be apprehended no time must be lost however to remedy this serious defect and I should wish to see you on the subject as quickly as possible I shall be in Duke Street in London all the evening this letter's date is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? um, And when you have been on the spot yourself and examined the state of the work, you had better come to me. So he, he was aware of even minor difficulties or issues which may have come up which could have affected the sort of uh, establishment of the railway or problems as they arose. And he expected people to <laughs> sort out the problems straight away. The Oxford Railway Company um, is embarking to Brunel provided proof in 1836 that he is engineer to this railway, so he is also engineer to the Oxford Railway Company as well as the Great Western Railway and a number of other companies as well. He submitted, in this proposal that he submitted here that the proposed railway is intended to unite with the Great Western Railway at Didcot, a distance of nine miles from Oxford. They're joining a complete railway communication between London and Oxford and between Bristol and Oxford. So, as we'll see later on, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel was employed as chief engineer to the Great Western Railway. However, he was also employed as engineer to a number of other different railway companies. Uh, now, he was probably a bit naughty because he, when he signed his contract with the GWR, he said he would be I- exclusively employed on working on doing works of great magnitude. How have you define that? Uh, but, so he interpreted that as meaning that he could work for other companies on works not of great magnitude, but which could be seen by other reasonable people as being works of magnitude. So if he's, build, if he's building a dirty great bridge for the Oxford and uh, Worcester Company uh, Company or any other railway company that possibly did conflict with the work he was doing for the GWR, especially when the GWR was actually seeking to amalgamate and absorb these other smaller railway companies. So he's being paid by companies who actually, while well <laughs> well the GWR at the same time trying to take them over, which is what happened. But then given his, um, I suppose, given his uh, his position, maybe he's entitled to do that, but he has, uh, uh a, <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, he had a thing, he had a thing in several pies, and he was Certainly, very active not just the GWR. One another uh, aspect of his industriousness, as I call it, and great attention to detail, is that he took aboard the fact that the implementation of the, rail, or the introduction of railways actually did start to deal with the fact that the um, there were different time zones within this country. So, um, you know, pe- people weren't too bothered about. Exact following of Greenwich Mean Time, and uh, <laughs> uh, but of course trains had to, in theory anyway, run according to certain timetables, and so he noted down the differences, uh, which in time were, I doubt, uh, for example, you know Paddington is uh, 38 minutes different from GMT, um, Reading three hours 51, no, t- sorry, 32, 38 seconds. Uh, Reading 3 minutes 51 and Bristol is way behind at 10 minutes 19 seconds so they um, again the, rail, the railways have sort of ironed out all these local traditions and eccentricities because I presume they just started the day when the, uh, when the sun came up and set their clocks accordingly you know, and, and at the end of the day as well here we see the first general meeting of the proprietors of the Great Western Railway and uh, they have appointed Mr. Brunel, engineer to the company, who has been actively employed in setting out and appropriating the land, preparing the contracts, and making other preliminary arrangements. This is, this, this is actually a bit later on, but it shows how things are developed. This is a GWR poster advertising cheap excursions to the rest of England, first-class travel, and travel in uncovered cover, uncovered in covered carriage with children under the age of three being allowed to travel at no charge and with older children being charged at half price. The railways made cross-country travel an affordable pleasure for many people and the rest of England became a popular holiday destination with the GWR opening up what was called the English Riviera. And of course at the time it it is greatly resented. The railways themselves were greatly resented and also the fact that they enable people to go on and sort of all these other pointless holidays all over the place. And uh, that, that wasn't liked at all. And so you saw that up in the Lake District as well, but also in the Southwest as well. So, and, that, and that's the, the, the term the English Riviera does date from that period of time. Is this next uh, re- reference of L109-68 is um, Mr. Brunel's report on the cost of the line from the Great, of the Great Western Line to Sirencester. Uh, and the probable cost uh, £223,000 £2,223,000 uh, £2, well I can't be right I think I'll have to check that figure there but the uh, that's, that's £249,000 in mid-19th century prices here are the notes of the Bayless and of Taunton gentleman a deputation for the Great and Royal Company being desirous of explaining the nature, objects, and prospects of their undertaking, we, the undersigned, request you to call a meeting for the purpose of giving the inhabitants of Taunton and its vicinity an opportunity of judging whether this part of England would be benefited by having the extension of a railway communication with the metropolis, whether the undertaking in question is well calculated, is well calculated to promote that object, and whether the time is right for giving support to the measure. So... And the thing about the Victorians they tended to use very sort of verbose language whenever possible, and that's a good example of that. Here we see the 1835, the first meeting of the director of the Great Western Railway Company since the passing of the Act of Incorporation, and it lists the names of all the directors appointed. And this is in the same document. And it says, that I.K. Brunel be appointed engineer-in-chief to the company um, at a salary of £2,000 per annum to include all personal charges for his general professional duties and for the personal superintendence of the works together with an allowance of £300 per annum in lieu of travelling expenses. Obviously, he has allowed free travel on the railways he'd built himself. That seems reasonable. It is stipulated that Mr. Brunel is to dev- devote himself to the general service of the company, and is not hereafter doing the existence of this agreement to undertake the construction of any other railway or work of magnitude other than branch railways to unite with the Great Western Railway without first obtaining the consent of the London or Bristol Committee. And in this next file I found here, Rail 55898, what you see, a case presented, um, and it's on the 11th of March 1851 and in the case already laid before Council in this matter the question of Mr. Brunel's position as engineer both for the Great Western Railway Company and the Oxford and Worcester and Wolverhampton Railway Company as affecting the interests of the former company in the present hostile attitude of the two companies is indirectly raised and has already been discussed and considered by Council. So what you're seeing here is a collision of interests and it's put forward the the two companies had hostile interest towards one another, mainly because their interests were, to an extent, coinciding. Mr Brunel said, It cannot but be evident that cases will very soon arise in which the interests of the two companies, the Great Western and the Oxford of Worcester, will be at variance, but these will grow so gradually upon us that it may be difficult to de- determine the precise moment at which, as I had before proposed, I should withdraw and, however strictly I might really confine my duties to simple engineering. And although the directors, even of both companies, might be satisfied that I acted impartially, I should expose myself to imputations from out of doors, not sure what he means by that, of pretending to advise two clients and neglecting or betraying the one for the benefit of the other. So that's his way out of it, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, and he, was ob- he, he continued to be employed by different royal companies for the rest of his life. Here we see um, objections, this is back in 1835 again, objections to the extension of the railway company and correspondence between the R- Great Western Railway and Eton College regarding the college's opposition to the Great Western Railway bill back in 1835. The, they, they, actually, they, they, they conceded that no depot shall be made at Slough nor within two miles in the other direction of the Great Western Railway. That a close fence or wall shall be constructed on both sides of the line within the same distance. That a sufficient and satisfactory police shall be maintained at all times within the same distance by the company to be appointed by and subjected to the control of the Provost of Eton and the Fellows of Eton for the purpose of preventing or restricting, under their orders, all access to the railway for the scholars of the college. So they're very worried about school uh, children or scholars at Eton College wandering onto the railway, but I haven't seen similar concern <laughs> expressed for children who went to more humble schools. But the, uh, they had to take into account the fact that I suppose uh, ETA was <laughs> quite an important school. If you look, at this file here is concerning the box tunnel itself, which was construction started that in the middle it was constructed in the mid 1830s uh, This contract comprehends the excavation of the tunnel and the depositing of the materials, separating the stone in the manner hereafter described, and the construction of all masonry and brickwork that may be required. And those are the procedures they're following for the excavation of the tunnel itself, which was an amazing piece of engineering. And it's worth very extensive research just in its own right. Still on the subject of the Box Tunnel, um, I found a letter here from uh, someone called William Glenys, addressed to another railway official based in Box itself. And he says, my um, dear sir, I have to request that no orders may be given to admit visitors to the tunnel. This is just after it being been completed or was about to be completed. I found it necessary to exclude everybody not connected with the works on account of the delays occasioned by visitors interrupting the view when we have been ranging the line. So they're wandering around, getting in the way basically, and otherwise interfering with the work. So once it was built, it was seen as a huge big tourist attraction, and people were going down there, presumably getting the railway down there just to look at the uh, the tunnel works itself. Here we see a petition of owner and occupiers of land on premises on and near the line of the proposed Great Western Railway against the bill with signatures. Um, that a bill is defend is defending in your Lordship's house for making a railway from Bristol to join the London to Birmingham Railway to call the Great Western with certain branches therefrom, And these people didn't like it. What they say is that the direction proposed for such a railway appears in many parts to be far from the most eligible which might have been chosen. So really they, they were largely objecting to railways going through their land or possibly canal owners were objecting to the loss of business or it have a disruptive effect on the local economy. There are a number of reasons they could put forward for it and here you are, you see the names of the petitioners. So if one of your ancestors was a, fa- was a fairly prominent person, he may have signed a petition against the extension of the Great Western Railway, you never know. Here, the next one is opposed um, to advertising the general receiving officer for all parts of the west of England daily via the Great Western Railway to their warehouse at North Street in Taunton, from where the goods were sent by fly wagon. Because that line had the line had only reached as far as Taunton at that date. This is uh, so. This is GWR being used for um, the circulation of mail and correspondence. As you saw earlier, that letter from Brunel dated at three o'clock. In those days, you could send a letter, and it would arrive at its destination amazingly quickly. And there were always one of its many achievements or benefits, was uh, making the Royal Mail as successful as it was within Britain, the whole of the country. This is dated 1849, it's at Swindon. Swindon is, is I think, a fairly ancient town, but until about 1840, it it was barely in existence at all. And then it became, it grew massively as a railway town. And here's just a list of drivers and firemen employed at Swindon and at Box, giving their names and their salary details. That's yes, in rail 257-6. Unfortunately, as um, soon as railways came along, you tended to see an uh, accumulation of railway accidents. And as I explained in my talk a few weeks ago when I was talking about railway staff records, these, um, these are very detailed reports prepared by officials working on behalf of the Board of Trade, who then submitted their reports to Parliament. Um, partly on the basis or the expectation that these accidents would not reoccur. And, but that wasn't really the case. But the, here you see an account of an accident in, on the Great Western in 1850, 1854. It's uh, sort rather of a sad case, really. Um, talking about a young girl about 13 years of age who died uh, as a consequence of, of the accident itself. Um, Again, if if you had an ancestor who worked on the Great Western Railway, these records are certainly worth consulting because, especially when the railway staff either died or were held to be culpable, there's a a very high chance they'll be referred to by name. Here we see the the Great Western, which was um, Mr Brunel's excursion into steamships, strongly built, Coppered and copper fastened with engines of the best construction by Wardley, Sons, and Field. And it sailed directly from Bristol to New York. And that was one of the advertisements they used to advertise the, um, the voyage itself. And it proved to be a great success. And, he, the, and the ships are well built, sturdily built. The SS Great Western, Great Eastern, rather, which sailed in the month Brunel died, there's a tremendous explosion on board. I think a number of people died, but the ship was so sturdy built it didn't sink, which was felt to at the time. Staying in the same document, Rail 1048, you get a layout of the steamship itself. By by the standards of the time, they're very well advanced, quite sophisticated. Mr Brunel, or Ismar Kinder Brunel, he was a workaholic, um, didn't enjoy the best of health, and. He was involved in a huge number of different projects, as so railways, bridges, um, steamships, working for different railway companies, rushing about the country, inspecting what he had been building, what he had been created, um, supervising works. He was a very busy and industrious person, and he is also heavily involved in the Great Exhibition in 1851. So he's a key figure in early to mid-Victorian Britain. Um, but I'd uh, say he, he rather exhausted himself. He died in 1859, aged only 53. And there's a letter here from someone called J. Bennett uh, in Rail 10, 24 I'm sure that you hear much regret of Mr. Brunel's death, which took place at to half past 10 the previous night, so 15th of September, 1859. And then we have. Um, again in rail 1014, a rather nice photograph of the last steam hauled scheduled train leaving Paddington. The locomotive in the Clune Castle, number 7029, uh, left at quarter past four, heading to Banbury. And that, stayed, that was on June 11th, 1965. So, the great experiment in steam started by people like Brunel had really run its course by the mid-1960s. The Great Western itself, this is in about 1930, had a huge huge monopoly, in fact a complete monopoly by 1930 of all railway lines in the rest of England and in Wales as well. In 1922 there was a partial merger of the the railways which sort of anticipated the bigger merger in 1947-48 when you had nationalisation and the... um, the smaller companies were absorbed or, or disappeared and the big four, including the Great Western, uh, were really um, responsible for all the trains in England, Scotland, Wales, uh, and not, not Northern Ireland, until 1948. And there you see the, uh, they had, you know, this is pre-beaching of course, so they had tentacles going everywhere. In those days you could travel around Wales on trains. If you want to get from, if you want to get from South Wales to Aberystwyth now, you have to go into England. And then come back into Mid Wales again. And that, that isn't, <laughs> isn't also popular in Wales. And you see these little branch lines going all over the place, the little villages, obscure little places. So within less than 100 years, that's just one line here. You had a complete, massive level of coverage of the whole, virtually everywhere within England and Wales, and a few little places up in North Wales around Anglesey, which was sort of relatively cut off. But you were never far from a railway line. Really, and so the GWR <coughs> wasn't—it was in a sense rightly called it God's Wonderful Railway, if you like, because it, it had almost a divine-like power to uh, <laughs> take over the country and just remap Britain, if you like. And uh, say so that line down there was particularly popular for people going on whole lane to the south west of England. In places like Paddington, of course, you had Paddington became possibly of Paddington very much so a Welsh area. Because workers were coming from South Wales via the DWR and settled around there. So there sort of a, that's just like parts of uh, St Pancras where lots of Scots people settled there as well. They, they, they came as far as they could in the railways and stay there. And that partly accounted for that. So that's not about 1930. And I thought I'd go on to show us a rather nice picture of a restored steam train. This is three years ago, and it's the Plymouth to Bristol, Temple Meads, Cornish Riviera Express, speeding through Highbridge, behind the GWR City Class 440, number 3440, City of Truro, taken on the 3rd of December 2004 by someone called Robert Beauville. And what you see now is that there are actually more and more steam trains being built, well being restored, and occasionally being built from scratch. Uh, railway lines are being opened, so in one sense steam is more popular than ever now. If you are coming here and researching the history of the Great Western Railway, there's obviously a huge number of records here, and I've only given you a taste of the sort of information you can find, the sort of records you're likely to find here. The, um, the, the uh, idea, I, mean I suppose most people are coming in uh, looking for interested ancestors who worked who on the railways or worked for particular railway companies. Well, Even they can sometimes extend their interest and look into the organization they're working for and how they're set up and how they run, how they're operated, what their profits were, what their losses were, etc. So I would recommend that anyone who's interested in railway, railway genealogy does extend their research into the overall history of the railways themselves. You could just, if you're interested in Brunel, you could just search under his name, perhaps limiting the dates to 1820 to 1860 and that's just a, a sample of the sort of records you're going you're to find which will have a um, complete award to Mr Brunel concerning payments etc. Letters from I.K. Brunel, there's a whole series of records just connected with, um, with him and with letters sent by him, received by him. Minutes of meeting before Brunel. Um, uh, in the arbitration between Henry Odderham and Oxford bristol and um, Wolverhampton Railway Company, I referred to that earlier on. If you're interested in just in the hist- Great Western Railway itself and search on, on the Great Western between shall we say 1820 and 1860 you'll get up all these, car- all these different series here which either directly relate to the Great Western or indirectly relate to them because most of them were later absorbed by the Great Western Railway. So, you'll see the parliamentary bill papers in Rail 280. South Wales Railway Company, that was later absorbed into the GWR. The, um, well the, the <laughs> we've lost the references here, but these should all be Ministry of Transport Records, or NT6. These relating specifically to the, um, the creation building of the Box Tunnel, Civics of Payments to Contractors, uh, Letters to o- Thomas Osler, etc. Well that's the one I showed earlier on asking that no more visitors be admitted to the tunnel. If you're interested in this particular subject, there's a number of different organisations you can contact. There's um, the STEAM Museum in Swindon is rather good. I've been there myself. Um, Rather nice artifacts there. Very approachable staff. There's also an organisation concerned with the modelling of Great Western Railway, GWR railways, uh, engines and and tracks and uh, infrastructure, so you could, that's www.gwr.org.uk. The main one there is the Didcot Railway Centre, which describes itself as the home of the Great Western Society, where you can find a huge amount of not just restored trains, but uh, literature, pamphlets, books, etc. And it's not too far from Oxford, so if anyone's got a, a spare afternoon or a spare day, I'd recommend a visit there. That is really just an introduction to the sort of records we have on the early history of the GWR. Okay, well, Bruno, thank you very much for that. Okay, yep. thank you. Thank you, much. Thank you.